Welcome to Only Yesterday. Uh, my name is Tony, and today we've got a very special guest. Ma'am, who are you? I'm your sister! <laughs> Yo, that's right. <laughs> but uh, my name is Megan Batia Muhammad. Um, outside of being your sister, I am a forensic therapist. Yo, I, that, I'm glad you said that. Um because that's one of the things we're going to be discussing today. Uh, we're going to be talking about working in forensic psychology. Sources for today, um, we've got Forensic Mental Health Assessment of Children and Adolescents by Stephen P. Sparta, excuse me, Stephen N. Sparta, and Gerald P. Kucher, or Kocher, or Coker, or K I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce that last name, but it was published by the uh, Oxford University Press. Um, we've got Collaborating Against Child Abuse, Exploring the Nordic Barnahus Model by Susan Johansson, Carrie Stevenson et al. From the Norwegian Social Research, um, Oslo and Akershus University of College, University College of Applied Sciences. We've got the ever infamous Wikipedia, the section Forensic Psychology. And we've also got the Handbook of Psychology, Volume 1, um, History of Psychology by Donald K. Friedheim and Irving B. Weiner, or Weiner. I'm not sure. I'm a juvenile, so I'm going to say Weiner. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so, and by the way, that that Handbook of Psychology, Volume 1, that's free. You can get that online for free. I didn't even pay for it. I just used it as a, as a reference. What is forensic psychology? Do you want to do you want to give what you think forensic psychology is before you know before we get into the the nitty gritty? The formal definition, yeah, yeah. I think you know I get asked that a lot in terms of therapy and like what what is forensic therapy and like forensic psychology, and it's just a fancy way of saying the application of studying human behavior within the criminal justice system. So applying psychology to the criminal justice system. It's just a fancy way of saying that. Every aspect of the criminal justice system, there's you can incorporate psychology into literally examining dead bodies. So there's there's so much that goes into it, right? Like mm -hmm. there's different fields, there's different aspects. And so when you talk about forensic psychology, um, it's focusing on the analytics of the psycho the psychoanalysis of humans and how our culture, our society, how do we apply our behavior to this idea of a criminal justice system that uh, our species specifically has made up? Mm, yo, I like that definition for sure. Um, and then, cause you know, the, the usual pop culture references, you know, you see in like CSI, Ooh, the criminal, the, the forensic psychology department, you know, but I don't it ain't think, nothing like that. Right, it's, it, it's nothing like that <laughs> at all. <laughs> Right. It, it doesn't do justice to the the multilateral, you know, practice that is, you know, forensic psychology. Um, Absolutely. There have been days where, you know, you watch a TV show, everything happens within that episode, but they don't explain when you're gathering DNA or somebody is sending in evidence or even when I'm doing an evaluation and I send it in, it's like weeks before your court date, before you're uh, testifying in like a a... a on the stand or anything like that, it takes weeks, months, years. So it is not a one episode type of ordeal. So mm -hmm. those shows make it seem so like, oh, this is like fun. It gets done in a day. No, it doesn't. 
Right. It it doesn't. Um, but I'm th- these are important points. And so um forensic so the formal definition, um, forensic psychology is the practice of psychology applied to the law, including research on various psychology-esque law topics like eyewitness testimony, reducing systemic racism in criminal law, um, jury selection, evaluating competency to stand trial, as well as many others. Um, Contemporary definitions of forensic psychology recognize that several subfields of psychology apply, quote, the scientific, technical, or specialized knowledge of psychology to the law, unquote. Over several, several, Subdisciplines such as clinical, social, experimental, and neuropsychology. Um, the field traces its roots to contributions by uh, Wilhelm Wundt. I'm not sure if that's a. Uh, I did. I did good. Okay, great. Um, Hugo Munsterberg and Sigmund Freud, among many others. And so, since since I know that you work in the field of forensic psychology, um, what made you want to go into this field and do this work? Yeah, I think that's a loaded question. So um, I come from a, you know, personal background wise, little self-disclosure. I come from a very uh, mental health heavy family that did not believe in seeking out care for or understand even what mental health was or how do you access resources for mental health. Um, And then I grew up in a community where I saw a lot of my peers in school, you know, getting suspended, getting in fights. I remember going to school and thinking this cannot be like, th- this cannot be all of my life. You're just seeing a new fight every day. You're hearing about somebody that got shot, somebody who went to jail. And so I remember seeing friends or peers in my community it just end up in the criminal justice system. And I was like, how, like, what is going on? How does this happen? And so I think my interest started there, but more than anything, it started within the home, wondering why family members are showing certain behaviors or why I feel the way that I do, right? Like we all as teenagers feel so misunderstood. And so it's like, does anybody else get how I'm feeling? It's almost like when you see those memes online and you're like, do we all live the same childhood? Because this is talking (laughs) exactly about how I felt. Did somebody else feel this exact same way? Mm -hmm. And the answer is yes, we did. But it just was not talked about because mental health has this taboo on it. And so for me, um, I know... When I went to, I got my undergrad degree in psychology and I minored in forensic and I, in forensic science. And I was just so like, this is going to sound so weird, but I remember we had, you know, it's going to sound weird, but all of us forensics kids were, were just a little weird. But Mm -hmm. I remember watching in undergrad, we had this class where we had to watch an animal decomposing. And I was like, this is the coolest thing that I've ever seen, like watching the process of decomposition and learning about the fact that there is actual body farms where people donate their bodies to science and watch human bodies decompose. And I was the weird person who was like, yeah, you know, this is interesting. Like forensics is just such an interesting field. And I decided to pursue it in grad school in, uh, uh, I got my master's in forensic psychology and I just, there hasn't been a day where I've regretted it. (laughs) Yo, that's great. And so I I think that's interesting as well. I guess I'm weird too. Um, Understand, and I mean, we're not just like looking at you know a decomposing body just for the for the satisfaction and for the the thrill of the death. It's like no, we're understanding during what stage this happens, so we know what to look for when we're in the field. Yeah, honestly, and that and I and I'm really glad that you said that because there's a lot of 
there there's so such incredible medical knowledge that comes from how did this person pass? What is the decomposition look like for a person who passed away on their stomach versus, you know, on their back? You know, what, what does blood pooling look like? There's so many different um, medical things that happen, medical processes that happen in a human body when you're alive and when you're not alive. And it's important for the purpose of science to know that's how we solve crimes, right? Like it's how we look at medical data and analyze, did this person do this crime? Or, you know, what was their involvement in it? You can look at blood spatter and tell how far away a bullet hits someone just by analyzing the pattern of the spatter of blood. So it's really, it's it's honestly really fascinating. Absolutely. Yo, this is, I'm... Mmm, this delicious, bro. This episode is going to be great. Or rather, I feel I'm like so it's excited. Yeah, let's go. Um, and so when did forensic psychology begin? Some of you may be asking, and maybe none of you are asking, but I'm going to tell you. Um, it can be argued that the beginnings of forensic psychology were found as far back as 480 BCE, which is long as a long ass time ago. Okay. Um as Hippocrates identified two forms of mental illness. We discussed this on the depression episode as well. Um, melancholia and mania. Um, the ancient Romans also wrote about madness as a medical and legal problem. Similarly, ancient Hebraic law stated that idiots and lunatics should not be, well, excuse me, quote unquote, idiots and lunatics, um, should not be held criminally responsible for their acts because they could not distinguish right from wrong. Um, by the 13th century, the policy in England was to use regular system of prosecution to determine guilt and then use the king's mercy as a possible option for avoiding execution of an insane convicted person. Um, however, <clears throat> over the following centuries, many widely publicized cases in Great Britain laid the groundwork for the treatment of insanity in the American and Canadian courts, um, one of which occurred in 1723 and involved the trial of Mad Ned, or Edward Arnold, who shot and wounded a nobleman closely aligned with King George I. Justice Tracy illustrated what has become known as the wild beast test, stating that in order for a person to be found liable for an offense, he must be a man that is totally deprived of his understanding and memory and doth not know what he's doing, no more than an infant, a brute, or a wild beast. And although Arnold was found guilty and sentenced to death, the man who he shot, Lord Onslow, who was, again, closely aligned with King George I, um, he interceded, and Arnold, Arnold was yet to remain in prison for his life. A judge ruled that evidence about the defendant's behavior after a crime was admissible, thus paving the way for medical testimony in future trials about the results of examinations. So, in a really condensed version... Um, Long time ago, people were doing the same shit they're doing today. And it seems like only yesterday we were talking about people being freaking too insane for trial. And today we are discussing forensic psychology and some of the same. Mm. So given, though, that not all forensic psychology involves insanity defenses, um, what are some of the cases you've been tasked with working? Yeah, I think uh, I think that's. A really awesome question because I see a variety of things. But before I get into that, there's something that you said that I wanted to also add on to. Now, you mentioned Wilhelm Wundt and uh, Hugo Munsterberg. So Hugo Munsterberg was the student of Wilhelm Wundt at, and he I think it was at Harvard. 
Um, and he was actually one of the reasons why psychological testimony was allowed into courtrooms. And one of the most popular cases, which our viewers probably are going to you know, know of, was Brown versus Board of Education. Mm. That was actually one of the first cases where psychological testimony was allowed in the courtroom because to speak for the impact of inequality on students and what segregation was with the psychological impact that it was having. And so when we talk about why that's important, when you have a jury or you have people who are deciding on the fate of other people, it's important to appeal to what we know, you know, aside from logic is going to influence them. And that's your emotions. You have to appeal to emotions that you and I have, our viewers have. We've all felt sad. We have felt moved by something nostalgic. And so when we look at admitting um, testimony into a, a courtroom, you're talking about people who can advocate for people that sometimes don't have the language to. Maybe you grew up in a home where you didn't have the ability to talk about, you know, I needed help at an early age, or these are the things that have happened to me. And that's why it's so important to have somebody do psychological evaluations and understand why can't you advocate for yourself? Why are you having a hard time making decisions and finding out like what is morally, quote unquote, morally correct for me to do, or I shouldn't do it, this is against the law. So the, the range of cases that I have worked with. I've worked um, extensively in gangs and human trafficking. I did a lot of work uh, partnering with the FBI to keep kiddos who were specifically involved in sex trafficking and, you know, listening to strangers who they were meeting online, that they were being catfished by and lured into meeting them in places or within gangs where they were just looking for a place to belong. And somebody was convincing them, hey, if you take the the fall for this, you know, you're going to have so much respect and you'll have family in me. And so it always breaks down to those like um, the needs as humans that we have. We all just want to feel loved. We want to feel wanted. We want to feel connected with others. And so we see a lot in the criminal justice system of people um, acting on passion or just acting on impulse because I don't know um, how else to get my needs met. And so I've worked, um, when I worked in the prison system, I've worked a lot with individuals that have, you know, hurt others um, that would also hurt themselves. And so I've seen a variety of cases. And um, I, I think when I expand the scope of it, you could say, have you worked with someone that has depression? Yes. Have you worked with someone that has, you know, psychosis? Yes. But at the basis of it, at the basis of it, I work with humans, humans that did things based off of how they were feeling at the time. You know, I'm I'm glad you said that because it it rings back to another thing that you had mentioned as well, how we've essentially we've established as humanity, right? We went from having basically no social interaction with each other at the very, you know, fucking beginning. And now we have, you know, society. We now have laws, power, governance, all these types of things. And so the importance of people's, you know, their their feeling in a particular situation or their safety in a particular situation or their thought process in a particular situation. The importance of those small or I guess, quote unquote, small, I mean, in the grand scheme of the fucking universe, but those small entities are enough to influence a judge's decision, right? Because if someone is not feeling safe at home or if someone is, you know, being attacked or whatever the case may be, um, we can look to the forensic psychologist who's been doing interviews and things like this with this person, and they can speak on behalf of said client. Um, and so I think it's it's great that you do what you do because, 
like again even in in the field of social work like nothing really gets done unless we write it down on a piece of paper like yeah that's, that's the only way we get paid even though you can see the effect that this person is feeling um it's unfortunate yeah um, I, to mention that. I think you know in in I personally am a huge believer. You've talked about this in previous podcasts, which is why I love, I mean, if anybody has not already heard previous episodes, I need you to go back and run them a listen because there's some really important content that's being talked about. And one of the big things is you always use evidence-based practices and you always talk about evidence, right? This is an evidence-based show. Now, one of the, I'm an evolutionary therapist. I believe strongly in evolutionary psychology and I believe strongly in evidence-based practices. Uh, fancy way of saying science and logic, right? Like that's what we, we were mm -hmm. using, science and logic. And when we break down the essence of human behavior, I love explaining this to people. And this is why therapy is so important and finding the right therapist is so important because at the basis of it, we're all animals. And you look at any animal, we're equipped with these emotions of anxiety, fear, and survival, right? For the purpose of survival, so you're going to have that fight, flight, freeze. We're equipped with that. We're biologically programmed to have fight, flight, freeze in us for the purpose of survival. Now, what happens when we're living in a society where fighting is penalized or punished? And it's like, no, you cannot fight for your resources and for your for survival because you don't need to do it anymore. So biologically, we're looking at all a society that's now saying, hey, we have to taper down the responses. This is what's considered acceptable and what's not considered an acceptable display of aggression. This is what's considered acceptable sadness and an unacceptable level of sadness, right? You look at the basis of how somebody is hospitalized for experiencing suicidal, you know, ideation or uh, suicidal intent, right? And we've we've all been sad. And my sadness is going to look different than your sadness. It's going to look different than somebody else's sadness. And when we break it down, you're biologically programmed to have those feelings to help you know, do I want to feel this way the next time? Then what do I need to do to either get rid of this feeling or, you know, decrease the frequency of it? Or what can I do to change the outcome? All of this is designed to shape our behavior. So when we look at evolutionary psych, society has advanced where once upon a time, animals if I was a lion going to a watering hole and maybe I saw a gazelle, I don't even know if those two are in the same ecosystem. Like, are those are those even in the same? Are those I, the I think same? I think they are somewhere okay. in Africa. For sure. <laughs> Let's say you're a lion and a gazelle and you see each other at the watering hole. Your instinct is going to be, do I run away? Do I fight this person? Do I just freeze and hope I'm not noticed? Right. There's a physical threat. But because we're humans and our brains are bigger and we've evolved as a society, evolution has occurred. Evolutionary psychology says the threat is no longer physical, it's psychological. So that's why the anxiety we're feeling, sometimes we're not able to pinpoint where it's coming from because it's not a physical thing. I'm not seeing a lion threatening my life. I'm not seeing somebody say like, you know, I'm directly in front of you and, and threatening you. Our threats are a lot more complex now. We've got text messages and a bunch of things that are expanding the scope of threats that are considered psychological threats. So that's where when we look at emotions, they're becoming a little bit more complex as, as evolution occurs and as we, we as a society are evolving because things are going to change the way that we examine how does sadness you know, occur when somebody sends you a text message. That's sad. You don't hear their voice. You don't see their body language, but you're reading these, these words. Why does it have the same effect? Mm -hmm. Yo, I, I feel you. And so 
when you were saying, you know, we we experience these these different threats, like a psychological threat, like my first or rather an example that came to my mind was not being able to pay the mortgage. Right. So that's a not only the psychological threat of, you know, the safety and security, but then you're thinking about the children, you're thinking about, you know, your way of life, you're thinking about like what you'll have to do to make sure that doesn't happen. Um, so yeah, when you're saying the anxiety is not just uh it's not just physical, it's not just someone who's about to punch you in your face. Like it's yes, it's psychological. Yeah. Exactly. There was a question you asked, and I completely went on a tangent. I think you had asked me. <laughs> no, you're fine. <laughs> Um, I just uh, just asked what some of the cases were that you've been tasked with working, but I mean, you you basically answered those. Like we we did great. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so uh, the next section we've got here is uh, something that the two of us have in common is working with juveniles. Um, and so depending on the legal inquiry and the particular role requested of the psychologist, his or her evaluation may focus on a broad array of questions about the past, present, or future psychological functioning of specific children, adolescents, adults, or families. Um, essentially just saying that the, depending on what's going on, the judge may ask the psychologist some questions that pertain to psychologists about families. Um, some of the questions may be framed in language familiar to a psychologist and generally within the expertise that the clinician brings to the situation. Um, conversely, some questions may be worded in the language of the ultimate legal issue and may tempt psychologists to exceed the boundaries of the person's expectations expertise, such as uh, which custodial placement is in the best interest of the child between two adequate, loving, um, available, and devoted parents. So that, that might be a question that the psychologist is unable to answer unless, you know, given an extensive amount of information. Um, so have you ever found yourself working with an adolescent or juvenile and just genuinely did not know what to say at the beginning, um, yet you found a way through? Uh, honestly, as a forensic therapist, there are tons of situations where you're, I mean, you can use motivational interviewing, you can use like, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, you can use all these evidence-based approaches, but nothing prepares you for walking into a room with somebody who is actively experiencing psychosis. And you can't apply those evidence-based practices because somebody is not even at a baseline to hear you. Right. Mm. So I, I very specifically story time, like you were talking about in your last, uh, uh, in your last episode, you referred to, you know, client P and ex explained extensively about, you know, your work with that client immediately. When I heard your last episode, what came up for me, I was like, I literally remember sitting in or walking into an evaluation room, um, for a client who had murdered their foster parent. And I, remember sitting there and uh, I had been told prior, hey, this this client has been um, kicked out of the state psych hospital. They have been kicked out of, they're no longer welcome there. They cannot be sent to the hospital because they have been assaulting individuals, blah, blah, blah. This is the only place they can be. We need your eval. And I was like, okay, you know, let's, let's try this. And sure. I remember walking into the room and this client is just responding to internal um, stimuli the hallucinations that they're having. Yeah. And I remember sitting there and saying, do I, do I just introduce myself? Do they even hear me when they are just getting up and swatting at things and they can't even maintain eye contact? They don't even know that I've walked into the room. And um, I have to do an evaluation as to why you just, why, why you killed your foster parent. And what do, how do I lead into that? And also, am I safe? Am I safe? Right. 
Are there things on the, you know, as a forensic therapist, you start to question, hey, your mind runs in a million directions. Can't leave this pencil on the table. That's a hazard. Can get stabbed in the eye. Can't leave my keys on the table. You can grab that and run. Can't leave my walkie on the table because X, Y, and Z. So your mind is also focused on your safety, but it's also focused on making a client feel psychologically safe. And I just remember I walked into that room and got zero stimulation from this patient. Oh, no. And I walked right out and I was like, regroup. Like we need to re, I, I had to talk to myself and say, we need to reassess. Like what is our approach here? Because it's not going to work to just go in and start this evaluation to just start this intake assessment. Like it's, it's not going to be effective. So I had to go in and just really break down to a human perspective. It was, I was sitting with a kiddo and I had to, this was a, a juvenile. And I had to sit there and really just start off simple with like, what are you thinking about? Like, what do you, what kind of things do you like to do? What's your favorite color, right? Like start mm-hmm. off from scratch because it all really still boils down to building rapport. How can I trust you? If I had this, you know, thought process that made me not trust my foster parent enough to want to hurt them, maybe I was responding to internal stimuli. Maybe I had thoughts, maybe something triggered me. What reason do I have to trust you? This lady who just walked into a room to assess me. And so um, I know I had to really break it down and say, you know, I have to start off with building rapport. Um, but even then, it was it was a challenge. There's some really challenging cases where you're like, I, you know, I really have to reassess all of my approaches and figure out what what is the best thing to do here because this client isn't giving me anything. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so how did, I mean, how did that, and let's say the last last session that you had with this person, or was it only the evaluation that you had to do with them? No, I, I I was asked to work with them and they had a lot of court appointments coming up. However, unfortunately, due to um, being unsafe at the correctional facility that we were at and assaulting so many other staff and students, um, they were immediately referred back to the state hospital. They had to get uh, emergency exception um, where they were being treated with, you know, injections and things of that sort. So the mm-hmm. even the state hospital, I remember having a MDT or a... Um, a multidisciplinary team um, a meeting where we all sat down with the state hospital. It was our correctional facility. It was a psychologist. And we're like, what, what, what do we do here? This client is not, they don't, they shouldn't be in corrections because they need to be stabilized because their hallucinations are, you know, not even allowing them to self-regulate, to have a, a thought process that allows them to utilize decision-making. But are they safer at a state hospital where they're, where they are assaulting other people? Um, there as well that are there for help or are they safer in a correctional facility or at a hospital like where can they go and so thankfully the state hospital was like you know we have to utilize restraints and it's unfortunate but this this client is going to be restrained majority of the time and if you can just imagine putting yourself in that headspace as someone who already physiologically and psychologically does not feel safe you are now being told you're going to be strapped to a table to have mitts on and things of that sort um, just because we're deeming you unsafe. It doesn't make your thoughts and your hallucinations go away. I don't think that was, you know, the best solution for this child, but it was the only option that the um, correctional facility, the state facility had, um, and the state facility had. And so I did not, uh, I worked with this client for about four months um, prior to them being sent to the um, to the state facility. And don't get me wrong, there were some really invigorating conversations, um, you know, to be able to assess in that manner. 
um, of saying, you know, why did you do these things? But again, when you're talking to someone, I, I there was very vividly a time where this client reached over the table and was like going to grab to grab me. And I literally mm. remember just thinking like this, this is just so unsafe. This is not, I cannot have a conversation there. It, what, what is the outcome here? What am I expecting to happen? You know, I can't go to court and say, yep, they have remorse. They have, you know, uh, they've been assessed for experiencing these hallucinations and we've got medication that works. Like they, there wasn't anything that I could do in that situation or provide resources or any amount of therapy that was going to help this client regulate because they did need medical intervention. So um, it was kind of, it was out of my hands. Yo, that is wild. Um, hopefully they're doing okay now. Uh, okay. Only yesterday, hopes you're doing all right, man. But uh, hey, stop killing people, please. Yeah, um, I know. Yo, uh, so why is this important, right? Why is forensic psychology important? Um, so from a famous 1990s case in Finland, a preschool-aged boy, um, I've left out the name because that's not really important, um, played games uh, which were perceived as a sexual nature um, with his friends. And this led to a concern that the boy might have been sexually abused. Um, the boy was then interviewed and taken into custody and was also not allowed to live with his parents until years later, when it was realized that the allegation was most likely unfounded and the investigative review with the boy had been severely suggestive. As a child interview is often the most important piece of evidence in child abuse investigations, um, the importance of high quality interview cannot be overstated. I say this in so many episodes, bro. Like if you're going to be working with people of this caliber, please be good at what you're doing. Um, forensic yeah. psychology is important because a good psychologist can be beneficial in a bunch of ways from advocating for someone's innocence to having a hand in sending someone to jail. Um, from being the difference maker in whether a child goes back to an abusive or neglectful home or not. Um, they also are able to set an example for countries around the world to follow, critique, and adjust. So being an effective forensic psychologist can ultimately change the world. Conversely, operating poorly can hinder not only the progress of the worker, but can cascade into more catastrophic events. Um, so have you seen or worked with someone who gave you an example of uh, poor work affecting the outcome of the situation. 100%. I think uh, you said something so important. Make sure you are good at what you do because yeah. th there, if you walk into a room with a client and you mess up their life further or their state of mind further from what they came to you for, and are like, you know, I, I'm just in no way helpful, but instead you're, the line of questioning that you're doing or the line of coping skills that you're offering are in no way helpful and you further exasperate their situation, you are not helping. Know when to refer out, know when to say you need these external resources. And to all the clients that are listening, I want to first and foremost break down the difference between a psychologist and a therapist, right? Psychologist, you're just like, you, you, you have a doctorate. So you are you have a doctorate, you are, you know, typically assessing or giving uh, giving assessments in a very different capacity than somebody who is a therapist can, who has a master's degree. So when you are working with a therapist, right, to determine if you want to work with a psychologist, a psychiatrist, again, psychiatrists can prescribe medication, um, psychologists do not. Um, and they typically, psychologists typically do assessments. And then you've got therapists who you go to for therapy and things of that sort. Now, when it comes to any clients here are, who are trying to determine, uh, anybody who's listening, who's trying to determine, do I go to psychologist, psychiatrist, or a therapist? 
I honestly want you to remember to do your research as to who you're going to and why you're wanting to go to this person and advocate for yourself because you are paying this person for their service. If you don't like your therapist, you do not need to keep meeting with that therapist. I always recommend to clients do some therapist shopping. You know, you're not going to instantly click with everyone. You're not every therapist and their style is going to be your cup of tea. Um, I know I'm very science-based, research study-based, um, very evolutionary psychology-based. And I tell my clients right off bat, here is what I bring to you in a session. And if this works for you, then, you know, we're, we'll have a good relationship. But uh, if it doesn't work for you, then I definitely recommend finding another therapist who can give you a different approach because different people have different approaches as to how they practice therapy. And there is not a right or wrong approach. It's just different because we're all different people. And so I, I have seen a lot of people who have been mismatched, especially within the criminal justice system, um, doing evaluations with somebody who maybe is not skilled in motivational interviewing, right? They can't ask you those open-ended questions that you need to think for yourself. So it's important to also be, as on the therapist end of things, be well-versed in the evidence-based practices that are out there and knowing what you can offer a client. Do you utilize motivational interviewing? Do you utilize cognitive behavioral therapy or dialectical behavioral therapy or ACT, right? Like there's so many different approaches that you can use when you have a client in your room um, or in your session, and it's important for them to fully understand what they should be getting out of a session and what you can offer to them. And so especially in the criminal justice system, I have seen some uh, therapists that would come in with somebody who is fully experiencing, you know, psychosis and saying, like, let's do some deep breathing and mindfulness and you do some meditations. And I'm like, they are not in a state. You cannot, you know, get someone to do yoga or meditation when Right now, they can't, they have poor reality testing. They don't know what's real and what's fake anymore. You know, mm -hmm. you have to start off from scratch of like, what's real? How do we determine if this is a real thing or this is not a real thing? Or somebody who is actively suicidal, you know, doing some deep breathing might not pull you out of your suicidal ideation. Um, and so again, different, and for some people that might work. So assessing your client's motivation and understanding how you can best serve them is really important, but also on the client's end of knowing how can this person serve me? You know, I, again, I tell my clients, I don't work harder than my, my clients at all. Like you have to come into a room ready to work, ready to talk. And if you're struggling with that, I can ask questions to help pull it out of you, but there's no way that I, if I'm giving you homework in therapy, you're not doing it. And you know, you don't want to engage or your therapies become like pulling teeth, then it's not going to be effective. So, um, I've seen a lot of, uh, just a lot of situations where it has not been a good match, I, I should say. Okay, no, I, I hear you. I'm with that, and so I, I agree. You know, there's there's many there's many different ways to approach a situation, and some some of, some are more beneficial than others. Um, and so you're saying, yo, we need all the skills, we need the tools, absolutely. What situation? And of course, we ain't trying to put nobody specifically on blast. We ain't gonna say your name, but have all the tools, all the freaking the boxes, all this. And that person used none of them, just absolutely shit the bed when it came to the client. Yeah, um, I think especially when I worked in a school, um, I saw that we had a, a specific school counselor who was not very, um, I'm trying to think of a, a way that I could say this by not like completely throwing another professional under the bus, but they did not really believe in reporting. 
Uh, mm-hmm. So reporting child abuse and neglect. And they were like, it messes up my rapport with this kiddo. Um, it messes up the relationship, especially if CPS does not intervene. I'm not going to report this, uh, you know, abuse that's happening. And I just remember thinking, this is unethical. Like, this is not, you're endangering a, a student. Like, this is no longer about like, oh, I'm I'm going to use my expertise. And I was like, this is just basic ethics. We all learn it in school. We all learn what you should and should not, you know, do uh, in a clinical setting. And so I literally remember um, having a conversation with this colleague and just saying like, hey, like, what, what is your, what, what's your thought process? And she was like, that's just not the type of therapist that I am. And I, that's not the type of counselor that I am. I'm not going to report because it messes up my relationship. And it's important for these kiddos to have a good relationship with someone. And I was like, all right. So um, that series of conversations and, you know, equipping someone with things that they could do and still report. I literally remember saying like, you know, you could still report and this is what you could do to like have someone feel prepared for your, for your mandated reporting or have someone feel X, Y, and Z um, comforted. Right. Mm -hmm. And they just didn't utilize any of them. And um, unfortunately for me, it did come down to like reporting the professional, but um, even then I was just like, you know, bless your heart. And I hope you're, I hope, that provider is, you know, more ethical now and, you know, whatever's, whatever they're doing in the practicing world. But yeah, I just remember thinking like, this is not serving Mm. the client at all. Right. And so I'm, thank you for sharing that story. Um, because it, I've mentioned this before and I think it was on not the most recent episode, but the one prior, um, I was discussing how you can give someone all the tools that they need in order to, you know, maintain the situation. You can do the trainings, you can do continued education. This person can have all sorts of degrees, accolades, and it is only effective as that person is willing to be in the moment. And Mm -hmm. so if you are working with people who are in crisis in any capacity, um, one, please be good at what you do. And two, please do it to the best of your ability. Um, because people are literally depending on you. That's that's what we're being paid for. So please, <laughs> it, it's weird that I have to say this, like yeah. as an adult to other adults, but that's all good. We're in the building. Right. right. And and going back to your, you know, what we said earlier, like I, you don't know if that person, again, I had to go through and make the report on behalf because I didn't, this provider wasn't going to do it. And of course I had to report them, but I still can't help but wonder what were those therapy sessions like? Like did, did, was the client actually benefiting from still continually going home to this dangerous situation, you know, until I was like, oh my gosh, this is happening. I need to report. And then even then, I don't know what was done with CPS, right? Like we often as um, therapists, it's not like they call us back and say like, here's what we're going to do about this. They they don't, we're behind the scenes. They don't tell us. And right. so I remember thinking like, if you're not good at your job and you're not trained or, you know, adequately prepared for situations like that, something really bad could have happened to that student when they went home, you know, and maybe we didn't see them the next day. And what happens when you don't see that student again in a week? And now we're in a situation where you didn't report and what, what, what was the outcome? What did you expect to happen all because you didn't want to mess up your rapport with a student, you know, like it's about safety. And so, like you said, if you're not sure consult somebody. If you're not good at it, get some more practice because when you're in the real time, like in, in a, in a session or with a client, like you don't have time to just like twiddle your fingers and figure out like, what do, what do I want to do about this situation? Okay. And you have to react. 
Right. You don't have time to tell the client, hold on, wait a second. Let me check my phone real quick. Let me check my notes on how to, you know, work with somebody in your, just kick it right there for a few minutes. I know you're hallucinating. I know you're super violent right now. I know you're slinging poop on the walls, but just give me a second, please. I need to check my Rolodex. Like (laughs) have it in your toolkit. Um, so, so what can we do? Um, if you're wanting to be in the field, um, become well-educated in the related subject matter and develop in your practice. And if you're not wanting to be in the field, but have been or will be in contact with a forensic psychologist, help them with what you can. Um, many times people working on behalf of clients are genuinely concerned for the well-being of their clients. So being able to guide them in a proper direction can effectively change the world. If not, it'll at least change their little world. Um, so you have anything else? Nope. I think you said it perfectly. I definitely, I, I, I recommend talking to, I recommend therapy for everybody. So definitely um, figure out if you want to talk to someone about some things that are going up in your head. And I'm proud to say, I mean, I go to therapy as well. So it's always helpful to take those thoughts in your head and have a sounding board, have somebody who you can thought partner with and, you know, realize what do you want to do about these real life situations? Because you know, they often prepare us and say, you can uh, crawl before you start walking, you start babbling before you start, you know, talking, but nothing really prepares you emotionally for the things that you deal with in life. There is no preparation for that. There is no small, you know, layup to this big disasters that we encounter. We just encounter stress and sometimes tragedies and you know, trauma and things of that sort. So there is no uh, practice mode for this. So talk to someone who can help you um, help equip you with skills and uh, thought processes to really prepare for uh, the future um, situations that can occur. Yo, for sure. Um, one quote that I used to say that I haven't said in a while, um, but I'm going to say it for y'all. Um, badasses are made when life is on hard mode. Okay. So I'm not saying that people who have it good are not good at what they do. I'm not saying none of that. I'm saying another quote that I heard from Ed Ed and Eddie. Okay, this is Ed Ed and Eddie. This ain't me. Okay. <laughs> My man's Eddie said, a little childhood trauma builds character. It's negative, but it's true. And I'm not saying we should go around traumatizing children. We, I, that's precisely what I'm not saying we do. I'm actually in the field of trying to prevent that. But what I'm saying is when terrible things happen to you, and you're able to find a way to work with that trauma and make it do work for you, essentially, you know, taking your pain and making something beautiful out of it instead of letting it destroy and eat at you. Beautiful things can happen. So that, that's what I mean. And, and I want all of your listeners to just lean in real fast right now, because I got something really important. Just just lend me your ear and lean in a little bit, just, just a little bit more. You can't prevent bad things from happening. You can't, but suffering is optional. Suffering is optional, but you can never get rid of those bad things happening. So it's just all about practice. We need to prepare ourselves for this internal battle that we're going to be going through and the one that life is throwing at us. So go get some help. Get some if you need it. Yo, so if you or anyone you know are struggling with issues related to anything we discussed in this episode, please reach out. Please seek help. Please be there for one another. This world is wild. This world is crazy, but we're trying. And I think that should mean something. So thank y'all. Thank y'all for listening. We'll catch you on the next one. Bye. Bye. No, don't come for me. No, but this is actually fun. It's informative because I've already learned a couple of things that I didn't know. 
were things that I hadn't thought about. 